It's the Bible Rundown, Pastor Rob, Pastor Dave. It's day 131, 2 Kings 13 and 14, and John chapter 2. I think we should spend all our time in John chapter 2 because there's a lot of Jehoaz and Joash and a lot of kings and a lot of things going on. But there is some significant stuff happening in these chapters, David, and uh, we don't want to we don't want to skim over them. So so tell us what what your thoughts are. I mean, we're really coming to the end of the time of the kings, and we're getting ready for exile. And I think these final kind of chapters, as we're wrapping up Second Kings, is going to point us to uh, a lot of language and events that sound eerily similar to Judges, right? Um, yes. Even though we have a king, people are still doing what's right in their own eyes. They've forgotten the word of the Lord. And uh, chapter 13 is a pivotal moment, right? The death of Elisha. And uh, no small thing that he is also referred to by Joash as the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And so you gave us a good explanation, Rob, with Elijah of what that saying represents. Um, this idea of a defender, essentially, of Israel by being God's representative. Well, the defender is gone. And what's interesting, you know, Isaiah and other prophets are still raised up after Elisha, but their message is very different, mm. right? Their, their message is one of exile is coming, so continue to trust in the Lord. But particularly with Isaiah, it's pointing us forward to the king of kings, the suffering servant who will restore Israel after this time of exile that's coming. But a lot of bloodshed, a lot of evil, a lot of idolatry. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the uh, the dynamic here. Elisha is dying, which represents almost the death of Israel here as as the guardian, uh, the word of God carried through the prophet is, is leaving. Israel will at some point get carried away by Assyria. The northern kingdom is is going down fast. But Elisha Elisha tells the to uh, he tells the the king to open the window and shoot the arrow. And the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. And uh, and he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to him, strike the ground with them. And so, again, not doing what the Word of God says. So he takes the arrows, but he doesn't shoot them all. And he only mm-hmm. shoots a few. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's that picture of Israel's failure to do exactly what the Word of God says and only doing it at certain points, which will lead to their destruction. So that's an interesting story that actually leads to the whole narrative in which Israel will be destroyed because they do not obey completely the word of the Lord. And Elisha dies, and we have this account of this man that himself died, and they threw him into the same grave that Elisha's bones are in. And what happens? He's revived. He comes back to yes. life. Yeah. Sounds very similar to Christ, right? Christ raises Lazarus from, from the dead before his death. But through Christ's death, we have life by his resurrection, right? Amen. So God is, is laying the groundwork and the foundation for what the gospel 
is and how it's going to be communicated to Israel very clearly that resurrection is a real thing. And Ezekiel, you know, takes this, this understanding of the dry bones, right? And this is, this is probably, you know, a very similar context of Israel is dead. Uh, Elisha has died. Israel is now, but God can resurrect him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through the bones of the prophets who spoke the word of God, if they will uh, return to what the word of God says. So it's very interesting prophesy O son of man speak to the bones and uh, that's what he says in ezekiel so it's it's some good stuff to relate to as we flash forward i mean we've got this back and forth through all of kings with israel the northern kingdom and judah the southern kingdom right and judah being the one tribe that that was on its own and what's interesting is more or less the the southern kingdom still holds on to following the word of God. And we see that in the life of Amaziah, right? Mm -hmm. We see that not only is he righteous in what he's instituting reforms, but when he carries out justice, he does it according to the law of Moses, doesn't overstep his bounds. And God's going to allow the Southern kingdom to survive longer than the Northern kingdom when it comes to Assyria and Babylon and the nations that will ultimately take him into exile. Yeah, and, you gotta, and we have to remember the promise, right, to David is, is that your kingdom will never end. And so, you know, the the lineage stays true, the line of David stays true until the end. But again, uh, as the end of Chronicles, as the end of the Old Testament ends, there's still some hope there at the end as, as a king of David is sitting at the in uh in in babylon at the table of the king and then uh john chapter two we get our gospel reading right it's interesting john draws attention not so much so i guess for for those that are maybe not familiar with the term matthew mark and luke are sometimes referred to as synoptic gospels being they're like a synopsis of jesus's life and his ministry John doesn't really bother with the chronological flow of Jesus's life, and he's not really trying to recount it day for day or year for year. He -hmm. draws attention to these significant events, right? So there's a lot around feasts that were appointed for Israel to celebrate and how Christ interacted with the people of Israel during those religious ceremonies. So, uh, John has a totally different take on how he's going to describe Jesus' life, but he kicks off with this wedding in Cana, and he puts the cleansing of the temple straight off the bat, Rob, in chapter 2. What are we to make of how John is, is pointing our attention to Jesus? Yeah, and, and again, in Malachi chapter 3, and suddenly the Lord will come into his temple, there's certainly the idea that the Lord is coming into his temple to to pronounce judgment upon those who have ransacked the temple of the Lord. Uh, You know, uh, this, this is, I think that this is referring to that in, in, um, and, uh, and ultimately the destruction of this physical temple that will be raised up in, in three days. Um, but he was t- speaking of the temple of his body. And so again, the, the temple being raised 
in three days and then he ushers in the kingdom of the new temple which is in the people of god the spirit of the god the presence of god it's just such a fascinating thread throughout all of scripture as you see these things unfolding um jesus is now the temple of god we've mentioned this before um in ezekiel or we, we talked about uh, we haven't talked about this but in ezekiel the glory of the Lord leaves the temple in the exile. And so in in John chapter 2, John chapter 1, uh, John is declaring to us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory. Glory is the one of the only son from the father, full of grace and two. So the glory of the Lord is returning in Christ. And so it's almost as if John is making this connection in 1 and 2 with the glory of the Lord returning to the temple, which is the body of Christ. And ultimately, Jesus will be ascended into heaven and he will send the glory of the Lord down through the spirit to dwell in the new temple, which is the church, the people of God. That That's probably a lot of confusion, but that is ultimately what's happening here when he's he's talking about this temple and and the temple of his body. It's because the presence of God is dwelling in him no longer in the physical building. That's good. Anything else on chapter two? If not, I've got a question for you. Go ahead. All right. So our, our Bible rundown question of the day, verse 23 through 25, he's at the Passover feast and we're told by John that many people believed in his name. But then in verse 24 and 25, we have this curious statement by John that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What does this mean? And how does it play with Jesus's commission of his disciples to go and testify to who he is and speak in his name, calling others to believe in it with them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this is, uh, Jesus is not going to allow the religious leaders in Jerusalem to dictate his ministry. They are not going to be the ones that are, uh, you know, you know, putting their stamp of approval on his ministry. And um, he knew ultimately what was going to happen, which was the wickedness of man. Ultimately, they were going to crucify him. So these are the people that were going to crucify him in Jerusalem, and he knew it. And so I think the the he didn't need their approval to show others that he was the very son of God. And John is is alluding to that. That's what I would say there. What what would you say? Oh, I agree. And I think, um, I think there's the bigger call of what Jesus' ministry was about. He's going to do signs and miracles, but he's also going to speak a pronouncement of warning on people that are only looking for signs and miracles, not looking for repentance, and definitely not looking for forgiveness of sin and renewal that can only be given by him. So I think 
I, I agree with everything you said. And I think there's this dynamic that even when the disciples, the apostles are sent out, they're equipped in the spirit to be able to do miraculous things, right? And continue right. to show that the spirit of God is working through them. But that is not their message is to look for the benefits of their salvation. They're, they're calling on people to believe in him. And I think that that's what we're getting at. He knows what's in the hearts of men. And so, uh, He's not wanting to entrust himself to people that are looking to gain power or authority through what he's able to do. He's looking for the changed heart. Yeah. Um, when you when you watch the temple scene in like a Jesus film or like a you know a Gospel of John film, you, you see this angry man who's walking into the temple and just overturning tables and overturning money changers is that is that accurate as as far as you read this or what 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 do you think this scene actually looked like at this time and why do you think that jesus because because we don't see a whole lot of times where jesus like pours out righteous anger upon people but this certainly is a time in which he, you know, you, you watch and you see, see that unfolding. Oh, I, I think it's, uh, it was certainly like a uh, chaotic and violent scene, right? Any person willing to, to make, how does John describe it? A whip of cords and overturning tables is not a, uh, Hey guys, let's clear out. And uh, we've got, we've got to have a, come to Jesus meeting where we can talk about what you guys are doing. Right. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things that God in his righteousness can, can show controlled anger. Right. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the movie depictions and all those different things, that's an artistic perspective. I, I think it would have been a sharp contrast, you know, it's, it, the religious rulers in and of themselves didn't want to lose their power, but you've got to imagine that John is putting this scene at the forefront of his gospel to show the sharp contrast that Jesus is calling people to something totally different than what they've been accustomed to and what they've seen going on. That's a good word. Bible rundown. We'll see you tomorrow.